Good morning, church. Hey, I got to tell you, it's good to be back with you today. I mean, I was present, but it's really exciting to be in the text again and and continuing through the book of Exodus. We're going to be there. Get your Bibles, chapter 11 and 12. But I just want to touch on a couple things. First, I want to let you know, if you did not catch the message last week, March brought the heat. It was an incredible teaching on the second half of Exodus chapter 10 and the darkness. And I I know you know, because I was listening as much as, as you were, the guy is an anointed teacher. He really is a a gifted pastor, and we're blessed to have him. He's an incredible blessing to me personally and our church family as a whole, and so I just want to encourage you. I, I can't tell you how much it blesses my heart to be able to sit down and let the Word of God wash over me. I, I'm taking crazy notes last week, and it's just a huge blessing. And John, I feel the same way about you on, on Monday or Friday morning Bible study, and you Thrive Group attendees, I feel the same about you when the Spirit of God is, is ministering to your heart. As a pastor, it beats my heart to see people not only grabbing a hold of Jesus in their own lives, but watch them be equipped to do the work of the ministry and sharing their faith and sharing and using their gifts for the glory of God. So I just just a blessing, and I miss Miss, miss, miss seeing that in person, but I've loved, the computer screen is all I get, I'll take it. But I want to touch on a couple announcements, just a couple things I want to say. Number one, Senna family, we love you. We support you, we we care about you, we look forward to sending teams down there to partner with you in ministry, and, and honestly, we're just grateful for the Christ-like example that you have been to all of us. Know that, we're loved. In fact, I just want to pray for you now. Father, if they were here, we'd all be laying hands on them, we'd all be just surrounding them at the front of the church, and, and just saying, Father, send them off with love, with grace, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with fruitfulness, Lord God, equip them. Them, pave the way, make it straight, Lord God. We would be praying that you'd be tilling up fertile soil, that you'd be you'd be removing thorns and thistles and anything in their way, Father. That you'd be swinging wide open doors that no man can shut and closing doors that no man can open. And God, we just pray that you'd be going before them, and you would use them mightily and effectively as they seek to serve you down in San Felipe, Mexico, and and touch many many lives for your glory, for your namesake. So God, be with them. We trust that you are. You promise you will be, and we love them and, and just lift them up. So God bless you, Senas. We, we certainly look forward to the continued fellowship in the future, but we, we love you. We want you to know that. Number two, I just want to touch on this. I know I'm not alone in this, but I am getting antsy, church family. This, this shelter in place, oh man, I'm... I need to be still, I need to be calm, but I'm like, wow, it's just, this is elongating and dragging on, and and I don't know about you, but it was like a a, a collective sigh in my heart to see that it was extended to the end of May, and I was, oh, I don't, I don't know, but I want you to know that God has not been surprised by one second of this. I've had to preach that to myself, and, and I'm preaching it to myself even now. God is not surprised, and I think all of us, if we just take a step back, we can see God has done some awesome things. He just really has. God has done things in this season that I'm not saying he couldn't have any other way because there's nothing God can't do, but I think it would have been more difficult because we had been moving too fast and we had been doing far too many things for God to get a hold of his heart like this season has allowed him to. And so I'm, I'm saying that I see the fruit and I, I'm just praying and I'm encouraging you to say, my hands are still up and open and saying, God, you are Lord. Lord over my life, Lord over this situation. Do what you want to, Lord, for your glory. We just want to be faithful. And I'm, I'm so thankful for technology, and we're trying to embrace that and use it as much as we can, again, for God's glory. But with that, in that news, the other news that came last week was, was Greenbrook Elementary School. That's where we had normally been able to meet, where we'd been meeting for a little over a year and a half, almost two years. In June, it would have been two years. Two years without moving, church. Many of you, you know, we've been in a lot of locations. But I want you to know we found out this week that we are not able to meet at Greenbrook Elementary School until at least August 2nd at the earliest. You know what that means is we're going to be on summer mission again. We've been on summer mission before and and we've seen God use that. He will use it again. But I don't know. We don't know exactly what that looks like. And so what I'm asking you, what we're doing and what we're asking you to do is please pray with us. Church, we need wisdom. We need God's wisdom. We're his church. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd and overseer of our souls. It's his church. So it's his problem. 
So we can say, God, show us with wisdom. Where do you want us to go? When do you want us to go there? How do you want us to meet? What is your summer plan for your church? Will you please pray that with us? Will you put a reminder on your phone or, or, or put something on your fridge? We need your prayer, church. This is a body, and we collectively want to be seeking God for his highest will for what he wants us to do in this time. So just please know that. We, we need you, and we, we, we just want to partner with you in this ministry and trust that, that we will. So with that, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 11. We're going to cover a fair amount of text, but we'll try and move through it quickly. And this is incredible, incredible truth. I wouldn't even go so far as to say, I think, again, I I could be wrong here, but I think this might be one of the most important sections in the entire New Testament for the types and the shadows and the titles that get applied to Jesus later. This is such an important, powerful text. So let's pray and we'll get into it. Father, we we come to you yet again, God. We come to you in prayer. And Father, I love that we can come to you as as often as we're able, praying without ceasing, because God, we need you that much. Father, we really, truly need you for our next breath, and, and we're so thankful that we can come to you in prayer. And, and we pray, God, we, we pray for wisdom, we pray for stillness, we pray for faith, we pray for trust. God, I pray that you help me with my impatience, and maybe I'm not the only one. Turns out patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and God, we need your Spirit to fill us up and give us, give us the gifts that radiate your glory, that reflect your character. So people could see us and say, man, those people have been with Jesus. God, that's what we want. And as we approach your text, Father, give us wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Holy Spirit, just be sent to every single house that is tuned in, every device that is tuned in, and anoint our ears to hear what your word says. Anoint our hearts to receive what your word wants to plant deep inside of our hearts. And Father... We just want to see you, Jesus. We want to see you. So reveal yourself to us in the text this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, the other good news here as we approach this is we finally made it. This is our last section of the plagues, the signs and wonders in the book of Exodus. We finally made it to part number eight, the last part of our series called Awe, the series within a series that we've been doing. And and we're seeing the final climax and the escalation of this confrontation between the Lord God Almighty and Pharaoh himself. And I I don't know about you, but through through nine plagues, I am convinced. I told you way back at the beginning that I felt like this was revealing to us the awe of God. I'm convinced. I'm more convinced than I have ever been that God is the source of all things awe. That God is just flat out awesome. I'm, I'm out of descriptive adjectives to describe how awesome God is, but he's awesome. And above all others, above all things, he's awesome. He's more worthy of honor and adoration. He's, he's more awesome. Above all others and all things. He's more, more deserving to be reverentially feared and obeyed. And we're talking about the Lord God of heaven and earth. We've seen him reveal himself through the text. And we've seen that not only is God's awe awesome, not only is it alluring, it draws us in, it pulls us in, but what's it supposed to do? Bring us to our knees. Bring us to the place where we say, God, you are God and I am not. We were supposed to come to the place where we say, God, you are the great I am. I am not. And through nine plagues, baffling to my mind, Pharaoh has still been unwilling to do that. We find ourselves in the text where Pharaoh is still in opposition, in arrogance, in darkness, shaking his fist at the Lord God himself, even going so far as to tell Moses and Aaron, the servants of the Most High God, get out of my face. I don't ever want to see you guys again. Right? That's where Pharaoh's at. His heart is so hard. He's so unwilling to yield and refuses to humble himself before the Lord God. Which means there's just one thing left. There's one plague left. There's just one thing left. And that's what we're going to see today. We're going to talk about the awe of God that is also dangerous. This is a dangerous place to be for Pharaoh. It is a dangerous place 
for all of us to be in when we find ourselves in the presence of God Almighty himself. And that's what we're going to see. And if we were together, I would I love, I just feel that reverence that kind of falls upon a place and a silence that comes. And I hope that's happening in your heart here. But what we're going to see this morning, why this is the most terrifying plague of all. And that's kind of a bold statement, really the most terrifying plague of all. Mark was talking last week about three days of, blind, of, of darkness that could be felt. That would be pretty terrifying. But this one's even more terrifying than that. Because God isn't going to send something this time. God isn't going to send frogs or flies or locusts or hail. God's not going to send darkness. God himself is going to come and go into the midst of Egypt. Again, for me, I'm just, that just gives me chills and it makes me shake a little bit and it just gives me this reverent fear that I hope you're feeling right now. We're going to see in the text, God says, I will go out into the midst of Egypt. God says that. God says, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And when you think about the the very literal, physical presence of God Almighty coming into your midst, that is awe, that is dangerous. That is a terrifying thing. So a great sense of awe is going to come. But I want this, I want this scene to, to really kind of settle in your heart. I even want to plant this seed thought in your mind as we go through this. The author of the Hebrews says this. We'll put this verse on your study guide or on your screens here now. It's, it is in your study guides. But Hebrews 10 verses 30 and 31 says this. For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I want you to think about that last statement in these verses. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A terrifying thing, a dangerous thing, and that is what is going to come upon Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and all the Hebrews who are here in Egypt during this time. And for Pharaoh specifically, he's been playing around with God. He has not been taking any of these first nine plagues nearly as serious as he should have been. He's been trying to make a deal when it's not a negotiation. He's been trying to offer compromises where there will be no compromises. He's refusing to humble himself before the Lord. He's offering false repentance. He's saying, well, just take away the consequences. I don't like those. And as soon as the consequences are gone, he turns right back around and hardens his heart again. He's been toying with God. He's been playing around with God. He has the mindset that I can endlessly resist the word of God. And I want you to know we cannot do that. There will be an end. It is appointed for men to die once and then comes the judgment. And then comes the fearful time of standing before the Lord. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's, again, that's where we're at. So if you've spent your entire life in defiance, refusing to obey God as Pharaoh has, refusing to humble yourself in repentance, it is a fearful thing. And so I just want you to be thinking about that as we go through the text today. But the other thing I want you to be thinking about is this isn't just for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. There's also all the Israelites in Goshen, in Egypt during this time as well. And I want you to know it's a dangerous thing for them too. Okay, don't think that, that they're off the hook here or that they're going to be safe in this situation. It's dangerous for them too. We're going to talk about what God and God alone is going to prepare as their means to survive this ordeal. But I don't want you to think for a second that they are not in grave danger. Everybody's in grave danger because God's awe is a dangerous thing. Okay, so keep that in mind. Let's get into the text and kind of build this towards that conclusion. Chapter 11, verse 1, says this, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. You're all going to go, the Lord affirms. 
Verse 2, speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt and in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. I want to stop here just ever so quickly. It's important for us to understand these first three verses in chapter 11. They're what we call parenthetical. And what that means is, is these are details that exist as if they are in parentheses. All right, they're, they're just information that, that the author is inspired by the Holy Spirit to tell us, but they don't advance the dialogue. They're not happening in real time. These are things that God has told Moses, and Moses will tell the people, and we're going to see they're going to obey. But this doesn't happen right here. It's Again, it's parenthetical. Parenthetical, existing as if in parentheses. But what God is saying here is he's saying, I'm going to fulfill my promises. I want you to know Moses, and I want all the people to know I'm going to fulfill my promises. And we've talked about this. I put these verses in your study guide as well. But God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, a very important chapter in the Bible, that his children, whom not one has been born yet, that your children are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Abraham believes God. It's credited to him as righteousness. But then God goes on to say, and those kids who are the children of of Israel right here, the the children, the Hebrews in in Exodus, he says they're going to go into a land that's going to be foreign to them. They're going to be afflicted. They're going to be in bondage, but don't worry, I'm going to deliver them out. And he says, with great possessions. And here's where we get the details of how God fulfills his promises. And we're talking over 500 years have passed since this moment, but I want to reassure you, God doesn't ever forget his promises. God doesn't say something like like we do. Sometimes I'm, I'm as a father and I'll say something and I forget what I say because I said it in passing and my kids, well, they remember. But God is never like that. He always remembers exactly what he promises no matter how many years go by, right? A day for the Lord is like a thousand years. God doesn't forget what he says yesterday even though it seems like a thousand years have passed. He remembers and then he fulfills it just like we're seeing here. So he's gonna tell him, here's what's gonna happen. You're gonna be able to ask for silver and gold from the children or from the Egyptians and they're going to give it to you. I want you to notice that part. You don't have to demand it. I'm not asking you to kick anybody's doors down and take it from them violently. You're not going to need to do that. Just ask for it. They'll give it to you. Why? God gives us the two reasons. Number one, because God has given the Hebrew people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. For many of you who've been following us along through this dialogue, through the the text in the book of Exodus, you know that's a mighty work of God. They didn't have favor when these plagues started, right? They were they were oppressors. They were being oppressed. They were slaves. They were being mocked. But now they're they're given favor. They're they're given grace from the Lord. God does that. I, I love the favor of God, the grace of God. And the number the number two reason is because they're going to see that the Lord God is with Moses. And again, another proof of what God has done in Moses' life. They're, they're no longer looking at this guy as some runaway guy who's taken matters into his own hands as we started the book of Exodus out. They see he is the servant of the Most High God. And many of the Egyptians have seen nine plagues is more than enough for us to see that this God is worthy of our awe and our obedience. And if his people want some silver and gold, that's a small price to pay for our very lives. So they're, they're going to see that. That's what's happening here. So they're going to get these articles of silver and gold. They're going to depart with great possessions. But just set that aside. We're going to talk more about that later. We'll see this come up again. But continuing with the dialogue, after chapter 10, verse 4 says, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. 
But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me saying, get out and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. Then he, Moses, went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now I want you to remember back to what we talked about last Sunday, what Mark shared with us at the end of chapter 10. Remember how Pharaoh is going to say to Moses, get away from me, get out of here. I never want to see your faces again. And Pharaoh even goes so far as to say, the next time you see my face, you're going to die. And I wonder if Moses is like kind of chuckling to himself saying, oh, that's, that's wishful thinking for you, Pharaoh. That's not the way it's going to go down. But that, that's kind of you to say because it's humorous. But in response to that, remember Moses says, you've spoken well. I will never see your face again. And what this is showing us, what we see with the rest of the text here in chapter 11, what we see is communication has completely broken down. These two guys are frustrated and angry with one another. Pharaoh is clearly angry because, well, Egypt is destroyed, right? He's been wrong. He's been defeated. He's 0 for 9. And every single attempt he's tried to make to negotiate has failed because this is not a negotiation. They were destined to fail. It's not a negotiation. God has always just stated his terms. Here's what I want you to do. You can either accept it or reject it. You can either repent or or resist. You can either adhere and obey or you can reject and disobey. That was it. That was that was all that there was. And, and by this point, Pharaoh gets it. I'm getting nowhere and Egypt keeps getting more destroyed. So I'm done with you. He's thinking, just get out of here. I'm done with you. And Moses in return, he's frustrated because he's thinking, come on, Pharaoh. What more do you need to see? What more? I mean, how many of us, we, we've heard people say, well, just show me a sign. Pharaoh's had nine signs. He'll get 10 before the this thing is done and he's still not going to repent. He's not going to humble himself before the Lord and say, you God are greater. Listen, we don't need a sign. We don't need another sign. We need to believe the signs we've already been given. We need to believe in a crucified, resurrected Lord Jesus. We need to be able to see his text and say, this is what he's done. This is who he is. But Pharaoh is still unwilling to do this. So in anger, We clearly see Moses is angry. He says, you will not see my face again. You've spoken well. And I want you to know he's saying it in this capacity. You're not going to see me come before you again as a mediator between you and God. You're not going to see me come before you and warn you of anything else before it comes to pass again. This is it. This is the last time you're going to see me in this capacity. It ends right here. And we're going to see that that's exactly what's going to happen because as this dialogue picks up still in the same situation in verse 4 that's when Moses is going to say since we're still here even though you want me to leave I'm not leaving yet I'll leave in a minute here's the last thing God wants you to know and he says about midnight the Lord is going to go into the midst of Egypt and I want you to notice that about midnight Notice the the language differs here. Usually he's been saying tomorrow about this time. Tomorrow about this time. And that's exactly time stamping the moment. He says midnight. And commentators and Bible scholars say, well, well, which midnight? Tonight's midnight? Now, I don't think so because we're going to see some more details that are going to have to take place to set up the first Passover. It could be two weeks before this midnight comes, which just think about that. Has God given any reason for Pharaoh to doubt that what he says is going to happen happens, right? Zero. He's he's nine for nine at this point, which means when God says at midnight, all the firstborn in Egypt are going to die, Pharaoh, at midnight. Do you think the guy got much sleep at all for the next two weeks? I think not, nor any of his servants, nor anyone else who would be within earshot of hearing what Moses is saying here. It gives me chills all over again when I think about it. I will, the Lord says, I will, notice the personal pronoun, I will go into Egypt. The Lord's going to go this time. He will execute judgment. And the timing, we don't know exactly, at a midnight 
night in the future. But I just want you to see God's dangerous awe is coming in this 10th and final plague. And Moses is able to share this with them. At at midnight, your firstborn is going to die. Now, what is this plague? We call it the death of the firstborn. All the firstborn in Egypt. And and we kind of look at that, and, and it's it's heavy, it's challenging, because he says, from, from the, the prince of Egypt, Pharaoh, your son, you who sit on the throne, your son, the prince of Egypt, he's going to die. The, to the servant girl who's grinding mill behind, the, the gr- grinding grain behind the mill, her firstborn is going to die. And everybody in between, and all the firstborn of the livestock, which would be about all that's left of the livestock given the previous plagues. They're all going to die. There's, there's going to be this universal execution of judgment. That's what God is going to do. And he's telling him this. Now, we kind of want to know, well, why the firstborn? Why is this the last plague? Well, remember what we went through as we go through the entirety of this, this text, as we've worked ourselves to get to this point. We, we read the verse when we opened our study. The Lord says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. Right? That's, that's what the Lord says. And this is what he deems is the repayment for the sin that Egypt has afflicted upon who? God's firstborn. God tells us that in chapter 4, verse 21. He tells us, Israel is my son, my firstborn son. So when God says, vengeance is mine, he's saying, hey, do you remember how you treated my firstborn son? Because God says, I remember. Do you remember how the book of Exodus starts up? Do you remember the heavy oppression and the affliction and the genocide that was taking place at the hand of the Egyptians upon the Hebrews, throwing their babies into the Nile River, having those midwives murder the babies after the Hebrew women were were birthing them? You remember all that? God remembers that. And when he says, this is how you treated my firstborn, vengeance is mine, I will repay, it's going to come back upon your firstborn. That's what God is doing. That's the connection here. Now, now listen, friends, listen. I know that's hard. I know that that's harsh. I know it's hard to see God in a light like that. This is hard for me too. I'm, I'm, wow, that's heavy. I want you to know three things about this. Three things that doesn't make it any less heavy, but three things that are very, very important to understand about this last plague. Number one, I want us to understand it was righteous. Please understand, God has never made a single mistake. God has never been wrong. God is fully righteous, holy, perfect, just. It's, it's not wrong, which means it's right, which means it's righteous. God has to take action upon the unrighteous treatment of his firstborn. So this is righteous. You just have to accept that because God is good. God is holy. God is righteous. Number two, this is measured. Please understand this. This judgment is measured, which means God holds back. He could have absolutely wiped every single Egyptian off the face of the earth right here, right now. That too would have been just but he measures his judgment here and it only applies to the firstborn. You know, we call that God's mercy and God's grace. It's measured. But number three, this one's the most important of this understanding about this plague. It was necessary. This was absolutely necessary. Pharaoh was not going to let the children of Israel go any other way. This is what it required. God knew. God told Pharaoh, or God told Moses, who told Pharaoh, this was going to be the last one way back at the beginning of all these sequences. God knew this is what it was going to take. But Pharaoh's hardness of heart, God hardening Pharaoh's heart, that just increased all of these signs and wonders to make God even more famous throughout all the world. But this was necessary. We see it in Pharaoh's own words in chapter 10 that he's not going to let the people go. But if you blow this up and you look at this big picture, I want you to understand the severity, the the impact that Pharaoh is opposing when he stands resistant to God's expressed will. Let my people go so they may serve me. When he's standing in the way of God's expressed will, you know what he's doing? He's ultimately standing in the way of God's plan of salvation for all of humanity. Do you realize that is so much bigger than just delivering the nation of Israel? Although that's huge. 
But just playing this out, if he doesn't deliver the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, I want you to think about this. Jesus, the Savior of the world, doesn't have the tribe of Judah to come through anymore. He comes through the tribe of Judah. Think about Jesus. He's born in Bethlehem. He's raised in Nazareth. He's going to be crucified outside of Jerusalem. He's going to rise from the dead, ascend back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father, ascending on the Mount of Olives just outside of Bethany. Do you know all those specific locations I just mentioned? They're in Israel. They're not in Egypt. Which means God has to get these people out to progress his plan of salvation for all of humanity. It's, it's a necessity. It's necessary that he brings this last plague down upon Egypt to complete his plan of salvation for the entire world, that which you and I are reaping the benefits of today. So it's just bigger than that. Don't get lost sometimes in the midst of what's happening when we have the bigger picture to see what God is working out here. And don't forget there's been nine plagues previously for Pharaoh has had every opportunity to relent and to change his mind, and he hasn't. So, so just picture what's going on here. Now, with all this going on, Moses is the one who's sharing this. It's as if Moses somehow is, is grabbing a hold of greater truth and greater knowledge that he just didn't know, but knows now as he spent time walking with the Lord. This is significant to me. Maybe it's not so significant to you, but I want you to look at verse 4 again. The very beginning of verse 4 says, Then Moses said... I want you to understand, at the climactic moment of these 10 plagues, at the moment where Pharaoh is frustrated and angry, at the moment when he's launching accusations to get out of my face, I never want to see you, I'll kill you if you come into my, in, in my presence again. That's what Pharaoh is saying. This is as, as intense as it's ever gotten. And notice that now Moses speaks. Think about how, isn't this the same guy who initially we called it beautiful reluctance, but it was borderline disobedience. What was his, what was his complaint? Lord, I can't speak before Pharaoh. Moses said that. Lord, I don't have eloquent of speech. Remember, he says, you're going to have to bring Aaron along with me. But can't you clearly see? Now Moses is speaking. Moses is the one who's sharing that. Why is that significant to me? Because Moses is not the same guy anymore. Moses is just not the same guy with the same fears anymore. Why? Because he's been walking with God for some time now, and God has changed him from the inside out. And I want you, Christian, I want you, listener, to be encouraged by that. That's how it works in our lives. God absolutely asks us to do things that that are bigger than us, that we're not capable of doing. But you know what he never does? He never asks us to do it alone. He says, I'll go with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You abide in me and I will abide in you and you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, but in me, you can do all things, the Lord says. Let's go together. And as we just say, God, I don't, know how, I don't know how I found myself in this rut. I don't know how I can get out of this rut. He says, you can do it with me. Just start walking with me. You may think, there's no way I'm ever going to speak to Pharaoh. That's fine. You just be obedient in the things that God is telling you to do today. And then be obedient again tomorrow. And you'll find yourself in Christ able to do things you never would have imagined you were able to do because he changed us from the inside out. Moses is case and point proof of that. He's speaking now to Pharaoh at the climax of this moment with incredible boldness. He has grabbed a hold of the Lord's heart. He sees God's promises. He has claimed God's promises for himself. He sees God fulfills his word. God has a plan. God is faithful. And he looks right back out at Pharaoh. And Moses says, this is what the Lord is going to do. It's going to happen at a midnight that he's going to specify. And in case you're wondering, not a single dog is going to growl or curl his lip or bark at any of the children of Israel because God has made a difference between the Egyptians and the Israelites. Such power, such boldness coming out of this once reluctant man because he spent time with God and God has changed him from the inside out. I love this Moses and I want to be like him. I want to be more like my Jesus and I know that that's your heart too. But look at the example and apply some of these things to your heart and life as well. But when this is all said and done, 
Pharaoh, Moses is kind of saying, Pharaoh, mark my words. You told me that you're never going to see me again, that you don't want to see me again. Mark my words. Your very servants, verse 8 says, your very servants are going to come down to me and bow down to me and they're going to say, get out and all the people who follow after you. After that, I will go out. And we're going to see in the text that is going to happen. And then Pharaoh himself is going to be a part of that same multitude, those same servants saying, get out. Now's the time to go. So who's going to win in this? God gets the final say. God always wins. So with that, now we have verse 8. Moses storms out in anger. Now the conversation is over. And it's been a great speech, but Pharaoh's heart is just too hard by now. He has hardened his heart so many times. God has hardened his heart, affirming his stance of opposition. And now he's just going to experience God's awe in a dangerous sort of way. So let's read some verses in chapter 12. A lot of verses. You can kind of sit back, follow along with me. We're going to read 28 verses together. So, so story time here. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now I want you to catch that. What God is doing here is he is creating a new calendar for his Jewish people to follow. This is, this is the beginning of a calendar. This event that we're going to read about is so important. They're going to function their entire calendar dating of events based upon it first. So just know that that's significant. When you think about our calendar, was there any significant event that we base our entire dating system upon? Oh, it was the birth of Jesus, right? It's that important. So just keep some of those things in mind. Verse 3 says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. Circle that, a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Verse 4, If the household is too small for the lamb, circle that, the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb, circle that one, your lamb, shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house where they eat it. Notice there's going to be no blood that's going to strike the bottom threshold of that door. There's no blood there. Why? Because this blood is never to be trampled. You are never to step on as if this blood is insignificant. It goes on the sides of the doorposts and the lentil, the top cross beam of the door. Verse 8, they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted with fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. I want you to note that nothing is to be left beyond that next morning. And that next morning, whatever's left, it should be burned with fire. Remember, there's no refrigeration. There's not a lot to preserve that. And this flesh from this lamb is not to ever see decay. So don't let it last any longer than that. Verse 11, and thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. So you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations. You shall keep it, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance." Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leaven 
leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation, and on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this same day I will have brought out your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native in the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin, and none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you." And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It shall come to pass when you come into the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? That you say, It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did." Deep breath. There's a lot to talk about there. Much of that we're going to see in some future studies, but I just want to cut right to the chase here. I want to keep consistency with the dialogue of the events that are taking place, keeping our focus on the awe of God. So notice Moses and Aaron, they're going to leave the presence of Pharaoh in this last encounter with him. They're going to go back out to the land of Goshen where the children of Israel are, are, and they're going to give them God's instructions for Passover. I want you to notice here, this is not a Levitical feast. That is important. This is pre-Levitical, which means these Passover instructions are given before the law of Moses has been given upon Mount Sinai. Right? Very, very important because we're going to see salvation has been given, demonstrated the precedent before the law could ever be kept, before the law could ever be fulfilled, before the law was ever even spoken into existence. All right? Very important. The precedent is all throughout the scripture. We are saved by God's grace through faith not of works so no one should boast the same truth repeated in the Old Testament and revealed and repeated again in the New Testament and here we see again right they're not saved because they did something in obedience to the law they're saved because they believed in what God said to do and they did it all right we're going to talk more about that but just note that I want you all to look back now at verse 12 chapter 12 verse 12 And I want you to see this very clearly. This is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. This is the first person pronoun. This is the Lord God himself. This is God's awe coming into the land of Egypt. And I want you to see and understand the very real danger here. I want you to understand that no person, no family, no household is exempt from this danger here. Everybody in Egypt is in danger at this moment. God showing up in his holy, perfect, awesome, all-consuming, unapproachable presence. Everybody's in danger. This is a dangerous situation for every living, breathing soul. 
So the children of Israel included, but I want us just to know that these are not, they're not excluded from this. Unlike some of the plagues that we started to see where God is drawing a boundary that seems invisible, but he knows, and he's separating the children of Israel apart from some of the plagues that he's bringing down upon the Egyptians. This is not like one of those, right? He's going to pass through their midst too. Everybody's in danger. So I don't want you to think they're excluded from this. This judgment is coming for all. When the Lord God says, I am Yahweh, I am the all-existing one, the self-existing one, I am the great I am, and I'm coming to execute judgment. That should scare the cheese out of everybody. God is coming. Like, what are we going to do? This is a terrifying situation. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. And that's what he's saying here. And so for these elders and all these Hebrews, their first concern initially was how do we escape the wrath of Pharaoh? They could care less about the wrath of Pharaoh in comparison to the wrath of God. God is coming. God's very presence is going to come. So please don't think for a second that the children of Israel are excluded from this. They're not. There may have been a tendency in some of their hearts to think that, hey, we're safe here in the land of Goshen. Because there have been previous plagues where chaos is raining down in the rest of Egypt, but not in Goshen. There may have been the tendency to think that, but that is not the situation here. We all have to understand, when the wrath of God is applied to unrighteous human hearts, listen, nobody is safe. Nobody is safe. God alone is holy. God alone is righteous. And no other human being who's ever lived is. Right? When God comes in the flesh through Jesus, I'm talking something excluding him. He is sinless. But I'm talking about human beings who are not also God incarnate. Human beings. None are righteous. No, not one. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all less than perfect. We need to understand that. That is one of the the greatest hindrances to people coming to God humbly. That was Pharaoh's greatest hindrance because it also required him. It requires us to acknowledge we are less than perfect. We are unrighteous in comparison to God. He is great and I'm less than great. And that is a necessity for us to understand. If we don't understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior, then we're never going to accept God's extended offer of salvation. If we think that there's some other way, if we think because we do something else, if we think because of our upbringing, if we think because of of our heritage or our ethnicity, if we think something else is going to save us, we will perish on this night. We will fall into the hands of the living God and it will be a fearful thing because we will be measured and found wanting. God is going to provide one way of exemption. God's going to provide one way of salvation for all of these Hebrews. And it's going to be the only thing that he's going to allow them to be saved from this plague. And it just happens to be the greatest type and the greatest shadow and the greatest picture Even a title that is going to take from the pages of scripture here and be applied to Jesus because this is pointing us to Jesus. When Jesus is is opening the Old Testament on on the the road to Emmaus or when Jesus is, is saying, you search the scriptures daily for in them you think you have life, but they are those which testify about me. I think it would have been highly unlikely he didn't point out this text right here to say, do you see what happened here? Do you see the precedent that is established? That was all pointing to me and what I've done on a cross for you. But look at what we're talking about here. This is so important. Judgment is coming. All those in Egypt, the children of Israel too, they're all guilty. Nobody is able to stand in the danger of God's awe. So what's going to happen is God is going to make a way where there is no way. God is going to lay out a pattern. He's going to give a, a, a prescription, some instructions to follow. And if and only if they, in faith, believe what God said for them to do, if and only if they do that, they're going to be saved. So that's what's going to happen here. Here's how it's going to go down. Every man leading his household needs to take a lamb, a male lamb. A lamb without spot or blemish in the prime of its life in the first year from either the sheep or the goats. They're going to select it on the 10th day. 
the Passover lamb for your family selected on the 10th day. If your household is too small, you can couple with another household. You can share that, but you better be in the same house. You better mark the doors that you're going to be in with the blood of that lamb. But you can do that. On the 10th day, it's identified. On the 14th day, three days after inspecting it to make sure it's perfect, to make sure it's the right one. Don't do this in haste. Then on the 14th day, you are to kill this Passover lamb at twilight. Now, after this lamb is killed, you're going to take a a bunch of hyssop. And what that is, is it's a plant. It's a plant with kind of a flowery end on it with some tiny little flowery hairs. You're going to take a bunch of that stuff. You're going to dip it in the blood of the lamb. And notice you're going to strike the doorposts and you're going to strike the lentil of the house. Notice strike. It's not, you're not going to paint with it. You're just going to strike and just think about that motion, right? It's in the form of a cross. It's totally pointing to Jesus. But you're going to strike the ends of the doorposts and then you're going to eat that Passover meal together. You're going to stay inside that blood marked house until morning. In this instance, Exodus 12, this Passover meal, this first one was to be eaten with readiness, with your sandals on your feet. You're not to be lounging around. You're not to be in your snuggie in this instance. You're supposed to be ready. The the staff in your hand, the sandals on your feet, ready to depart, ready to make haste. I even love that it says you are to eat in haste. Lexi, I hope you're watching. It is a biblical thing for me to eat in haste. I can eat as fast as I want. The Bible says so. Okay, maybe a little out of context, but I really did want to say that and show her that. But I don't want you to miss this. Verse 13 now. It says, now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when, God speaking, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This is the part I do not want us to miss. I want you to see that the blood is going to be the sign. God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. God doesn't say, when I see that you have turned your front porch light on, when I see that you have a Christian welcome mat, when I see that you've mowed your lawn really good and it's nice and tended and pretty, when I see who, who you're with on the inside, he says, what is on the inside is not going to spare your life on this day. It better be what's on the outside. What is covering you? What has been sacrificed in atonement for you is what God is going to see and look at. When we think of this sign, sometimes we think that, that God needs a sign. That we're like, well, I better put a sign on my front door. Hey, Christian lives here. Hey, I'm saved. Really? Like, you think God needs a sign like that? He's able to, with pinpoint accuracy, direct the hail to fall on the Egyptians' livestock and none of the Hebrews' livestock, right? You think he needs a sign? God doesn't need a sign. God looks for a distinguishing mark to set you apart, to sanctify you for his holy purposes. And the one sign that God decides is sufficient is what else? The blood of a lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb. That is what God is saying he's going to do. So it's powerful because here's the situation. If this house is going to be passed over, these instructions have to be kept by the Lord. Exactly. What if you're like, well, I just don't, I, I, my lamb's, you know, a good pet of mine. I just don't want to kill it. Okay, well, your firstborn's going to die. Well, well I, don't, I don't, I just painted the house. I've got a light trim. I don't want to slap blood on my trim. It's going to stain. You're not going to be passed over. I mean, this is the one, haven't we learned from Pharaoh? It's not a negotiation. We don't get to come to God and say, well, I want to take what I like and I want, to, I want to reject the rest. That's not how it works with God. We come to the word of God humbly and we accept it as it is. Either the Lord is Lord of all or the Lord is not Lord at all. That's just the way it is. You take that up with God. But Pharaoh has taught us it's not a negotiation. It's not a compromise. And these Hebrews here, they're not like, well, well, I don't, where's the type and shadow of this? Well, what does that really mean? Well, what is it said in the Hebrew? Well, how does it apply to the Greek? I have to understand all these intellectually. I'm not saying there aren't beautiful things and understanding the intellectuality of God and, and having the depths of our mind spun because God, the creator of the universe, has given us some incredible things to comprehend. But I'm saying when it comes to putting our faith in Jesus, when it comes to trusting God's way of salvation, it needs to be obeyed. You put your faith in God. You trust him and he shows 
shows you. These Passover things are going to come in so many different regards, but that's what he's saying. I need you to obey me. I need you to do this exactly as I'm instructing you to do it. If you do this, you will be saved. Now, we want to say, why? Why does the blood of the Lamb, if we're trying to extract this, what is this going to do? Why is God going to receive this? Well, at the end of this, we're going to see that there's not a single house in Egypt where there hasn't been a death of some kind. And I want you to understand that God sets the precedent that if there's been sin, if, if and because there is sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God, the wages of sin is death. God has deemed that the price that sin occurs is death. And he said the only way that death is going to be satisfied is if one who is spotless and, and unblemished, sinless, is going to be made sacrificially as an atonement to pay that price. That's God's standard, right? He says, he says there is no forgiveness except for the remission of sins. Somebody has to die. Something has to die. And he's setting the precedent here. But what he's doing here is he's accepting it. He is showing us here in the text that he is accepting from the price of redemption the blood of a, of a perfect spotless lamb. That's what he's showing us. And again, it sets the precedent and it leads us all the way up into Jesus. And we say, how can this be? This is exactly speaking us of what Jesus did. And that's by design because Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. It all connects. But let's just try to tie this in together. Again, I know I'm leaving a ton of meat on the bone and I I want you to talk about this because there's so much more to talk about. But let's try to tie this together. We started our study out. We're talking about God's awe is dangerous. That it is a fearful, terrifying, thing to fall into the hands of God. And that is absolutely true. And then we talk about how it's appointed for man to die once. And then comes the judgment that there will be a time when every single person who's ever lived and ever will live will stand before God face to face and give an account for their life. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is indeed Lord. But if you've spent your entire life shaking your hand in defiance, if you've spent your entire life saying, I do not want the blood of the lamb covering my life, then what you're going to find is it is indeed a fearful, terrifying, dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the Lord. But if you will let the scripture be your example, if you will see what the scripture says, let the Bible clearly speak for the Bible and say, well, I need some blood to cover my life. I need a lamb to die in my place. I don't want to stand before perfect, awesome, holy, righteous God. I admit I'm a sinner. And we say, well, that's why Jesus came. This is the perfect segue into that's our application for this morning. That's why Jesus came. God isn't surprised that we're sinners. I think God is surprised that we take his way of salvation and we say, I don't want that. I'd rather try it my own way. When his Bible is so crystal clear about this is the way, this is the only way. Think of all the other possibilities that could have happened here in Egypt on this day and they would have been insufficient. But God provides the way. Death is going to come upon us all. But here we can see a moment to be able to stand if we let Jesus be our righteousness, if we let Jesus be our covering, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Just as the children of Israel are spared from this judgment, we can and will be spared if the Lord God looks at us and sees the lamb, sees Jesus has clothed us with his robe of righteousness. I'm going to show you some verses as we try to wind this down and close it out. These are verses from the New Testament that point to Jesus being the lamb of God, the Passover lamb that we've just read about here in the book of Exodus. John chapter 1 verse 29 says, The next day John, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about this in the same context of what we've just been talking about in Exodus. Jesus takes away. Notice that he doesn't just cover us temporarily. Notice that Jesus isn't just trying to get us out of Egypt in a sense. not trying to get us out of this world in a sense, but he's also taking away our sins forever. Removing them as far as the east is from the west. Cleansing us. Removing the leaven. There's a whole other Bible study that we could spend talking about leaven and unleavened bread and all those things, but we just don't have the time to do it this morning. But John just pointing out Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 7 through 8 says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, 
since you are truly unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's saying, Christ, our Passover, again, same language, same context, has removed the leaven from our hearts. Leaven being a, leaven being a picture of sin, a picture of corruption, That's what, that which puffs up. It says, Christ has, has pulled that away. He's cleansed us. We are unleavened. So keep the feast with a pure heart, with sincerity and truth. But, but Jesus being our Passover lamb, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Again, perfectly tying it together. John the Baptist got it, the greatest born of a woman. Paul the Apostle got it, the greatest apostle. Peter got it, one of those who walked closest to Jesus. He connects these dots. Jesus is the Passover lamb. And so as we come down and we we try to apply this to ourselves, there's just one question to ask. Who is Jesus to you? I had you circle some verses at the beginning of chapter 12. And I want you to see this progression. In chapter 12, is this Passover starting to be instituted? Verse 3 talked about a lamb. Just go find a lamb. Verse 4 talked about that lamb can be the lamb. Now we're talking about a specific lamb, but then in verse 5 it says, your lamb. And now we're talking about the Passover lamb who is a salvation for you. And I want to just ask you that. The same progression is, is all the way throughout the New Testament. We can ask, who is Jesus to you? Is he a savior? He, he is a savior. She's a savior. Is he the savior? Or is he your savior? This has to be personally applied to your life. If I, if I thought, well, my neighbors are, are very devout. They sacrificed the lamb and they did this thing. And so, hey, we're friends. I'm just going to be close to them. You will not be passed over. It has to be a personal application, a cleansing, a forgiveness, an atonement for you. And Jesus, he died for the sins of the world. He died. So whosoever would come to him by faith would be saved. He is the Passover lamb. He can still be your Passover lamb today. But you have to let that progression take place. You see the need. You recognize that you're a sinner and you need a savior. You see the opportunity for salvation. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. The lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And you say, I want you to be my savior. Jesus, I need you to save me. I put my faith and my trust in you. You are the lamb of God. You died in my place. You rose from the grave. You ever lived to make intercession for me and you have imputed your righteousness into my life. So when God sees me, even though he knows my heart and he knows my mind and even though I still struggle with sin today, he sees me because he sees his son clothing me with his righteousness. He sees his son, the lamb of God saying, I I bled for that one. I've washed him white as snow with my precious blood. Christians, that's what it means. Jesus is our Passover lamb, and we want that. We want that relationship. If you're listening and you don't, you don't have that relationship, that's what this whole thing is about. There's no other message I want to share with you than that, that God loves you so much that he does not want it to be a fearful thing for you to fall into the hands of God when judgment does come. He says, I want to rescue you now, So it doesn't have to be a fearful thing. It can be a glorious thing. It can be a marriage supper of the lamb, a celebration type of thing. That's why Jesus came, to give us abundant life now, eternal life forever. And that starts right here when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus. If that's you and you want to do that, do that with us today. For the rest of us, we want to close out with communion because how can you talk about all this and not lift up a cup and talk about the broken bread, the broken body, and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus. So I hope you have your elements with you. We still have these, these kind of cup, little one, one drop, fix all kind of thing, but it's, it's symbolic as we do this as an ordinance. Know this, this Passover talked about being an everlasting ordinance. This new covenant, this is what Jesus says to us. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this remembering what I did for you, who I am for you. I am your savior. 
So we want to do that. As, as Paul would tell us, we, we break the bread, we give thanks. So I want to do that. So I trust you have your elements. And let's just pray and do that very thing. Father, we, we come to you in Jesus' name. And Father, we are so glad that you have done all the work. God, we're so glad that you've made it clear that you are our Passover lamb. And Father, glad just seems to pale in comparison of, of what I, I should say. I just, God, we're in awe of you and we're thankful for you and we love you and we, we would be nowhere without you. And you are our only hope. Christ in us, our hope for glory. And God, we just thank you for dying on a cross for our behalf. We thank you that you bled for us. God, we thank you for your righteousness. You are our righteousness and we just praise you, Jesus. Let's take the bread and just praise our God and King. And Father, we lift up this cup to you as well, God. I hope now for for some of us, we see how important the blood is. I think maybe it's weird for some of us to think, oh, how precious is the blood, or thank you, Jesus, for your blood. But I, ho- I hope we all see that, God, it's, it's not with our understanding, but it's with your understanding. This blood is what distinguishes us. It's what set us, sets us apart. It's what was required to satisfy the payment for our sin. Jesus, you did that. And when you lift up the cup, you say, this is a new covenant signed and sealed and delivered in my blood Drink this in remembrance of me, God. That's what we do as we rejoice over you. Let's take the cup. Mm. Church, I, I can't wait to be able to do this together at some point in the future, but I'm just so grateful for, for who God is and what he's done. And I, I just pray that this has just resonated with your soul. And and I pray that you'd have some, some fellowship afterwards where we'll play a song or we're doing a Zoom fellowship after service. And if you want to talk more about this stuff, if you want to engage, that's what we, that's what we love to do. We want to, talk, we want to talk Bible. We want to talk about who Jesus is. We want to connect these dots. We, we want to introduce you to him. And, and for this Zoom fellowship, we can certainly do that. And then I've specifically asked the Senas to just be available as, as we would love to fellowship with them as well. So you get on, give them a shout out, share a verse, tell them you love them. Just, just be encouraging in, in some regard. But, but God bless you, church. We'll play another song and we'll wrap it up. But we love you. God bless you all. Have a great week.